Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Dennis. I'm one of the pastors here at Garden City. Um, it is really great to see all of you this morning. Really great to meet those of you who are here this morning for the first time. Um, we are in the middle of a series on the book of Acts. We have made it through the first nine chapters. Um, I don't remember the exact date that we started the series, but I think we've gotten through nine chapters in about seven months. Um, it's probably not that long. Um, but we're in chapter 10. After this, um, about 18 more to go. So we'll be here through 2025. Um, and I have personally like, really enjoyed the conversations we've gotten to have as a church as we've walked through this book. The conversations that we've gotten to have just about the way that all of these people, these women and men in the early church, they just have their lives kind of dedicated and offered to Jesus in the ways that the Spirit leads and guides them, in the ways that the things that they learned 2,000 some years ago are still very pertinent to the way that we are trying to figure out how to live our lives faithfully in our neighborhoods and in our city today. We're in chapter 10 today, and I guess the place to start is that over the past 14 years that I have been in ministry, um, I've worked with high school students leading a high school ministry at a church in the suburbs. I been the associate pastor of an urban church in Oakland, and then I was the pastor of that church for a number of years, and now for the past two and a half years, I've been here with you, together as a church in the north side in Garden City. And one of the things that is consistent over 14 years, consistent over whether or not I'm interacting with a freshman in high school, a freshman in college, or somebody who's in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, is that inevitably there are conversations with folks who will say to me, I just don't hear Jesus. Like, I just, I don't hear Jesus. I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm trying to live my life in this way. I want to follow Jesus with my life, and yet... I just, I don't hear him. It's like I, I will set aside times and try to pray, and I just, there's nothing that happens in those spaces. And sometimes I think I'm just talking to no one, and I'm not even sure if God really sees me or cares about me or is invested or involved in my life. And then even people saying things like, you know, I just, I don't even know what he wants me to do with my life. And those conversations oftentimes, I think to just be really honest about them, they, they border on despair. Like the folks who are experiencing those things are in this place where they have like almost lost hope. A lot of people in my relational circles who are what I guess like going through the process that we might refer to as like deconstructing their faith, oftentimes a starting point for that is I don't hear from Jesus, I don't understand the way that he's involved or invested in my life, and I have no idea how he is speaking direction 
into my life or what I'm supposed to do. And in the midst of that, what feels like it should be this most fundamental aspect of a relationship where I should be able to talk to Jesus and hear back, if that's not there, then like, I'm just, I'm so concerned about whether or not any of this is actually real. And that's kind of the conversation I want to have this morning. I want to settle in there for a little while. Because I think the passage we're about to read in the book of Acts, it, I think it has something to say to that. I think there's an invitation in it that is meaningful for us wherever we find ourselves on our spiritual journey. Whether right now it feels like we are on a mountaintop and we've never experienced a type of closeness with Jesus like we are right now, or whether or not we're just on a plane and everything is just normal and it's fine and it's working, or maybe even if we're in a valley where we just can't find the light, we don't know the direction, everything sounds like echoes and we're just not hearing clearly. I think this passage in Acts might have something to say to each one of us and an invitation for each one of us, too. And I think I want to make sure that I say this up front. I'm not suggesting, this is not a how-to sermon. Hopefully over the two years that you've been here, if you've been here that long, or whether you've been here for just three months, we're not really into how-to sermons, where if you just do these five things, then this is absolutely going to work for you, and it's all great. We are going to, like this morning I hope, be real about what we experience and say like in the midst of all of that, Jesus. In the midst of all of that, Jesus. And so this is not a sermon where there's a how-to or a prescription. We're not going to find some silver bullet inside of it. We're not going to find definitive answers to our questions. We're not even necessarily going to find a formula. But I think this passage can speak to each and every one of us as we are trying to figure out what it means to be in relationship with Jesus, to hear from him, and to have our lives directed and guided by him. Because I do believe that Jesus wants to talk with us. I do believe that Jesus wants relationship with us. And I do believe that Jesus wants to speak direction and meaning into our lives. This week, um, we're in Acts 10, as I mentioned, specifically verses 1 through 23. It's actually two stories. First is a story of a man named Cornelius. Second is a story about the apostle Peter. It's two separate stories. They're two related stories and next week, Pastor Shaq is actually going to talk through the culmination of these two stories when Peter and Cornelius actually meet. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to take these two sections, the section with Cornelius and the section with Peter, we're going to handle them separately, and at the end of that, we're going to have a conversation and see if we can bring these two things together and make sense of them for our lives. So this is the story about Cornelius, starting in verse 1. Luke writes, At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. 
Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? Um, like, could just for a moment, could you imagine that? Like, I feel like I'd absolutely be terrified if I just, like, all of a sudden there was an angel in front of me. And then the angel just with an exclamation point shouted my name. Like, Dennis! Oh my gosh, I'm afraid on multiple levels right now. Cornelius stares at him in fear and says, what is it, Lord? There's something here, like, all throughout the book of Acts. When an angel appears the people know it's God. They know it's God. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who had spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. So, Luke tells us that Cornelius is a centurion. It means that Cornelius is a commander in the Roman army overseeing 100 men. And he's doing it in Caesarea. Caesarea is one of the largest, most important cities in the entire Roman Empire. It was specifically built as a port city so that like ships would have to go through Caesarea to be able to deliver their goods and enter into the Roman Empire empire. I share this because the Roman army does not send bad soldiers to Caesarea. Cornelius is good at what he does. The Italian regiment that would be in Caesarea comprises some of the absolute best in the Roman army. And simply by telling his readers that Cornelius is a centurion, we know that Cornelius is a Gentile. In short, That means that Cornelius is not Jewish. And yet the way that Luke describes Cornelius and his family is really interesting. Because if you just read the description and didn't know that Cornelius was a centurion, you would think that Cornelius was a Jew. Luke describes Cornelius this way. says he's he's devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. In essence, Cornelius is upholding Jewish religious and ethical practices for living. He's praying consistently. And he's generously giving to meet the needs of the poor. In essence, Peter, or I'm sorry, in essence, Cornelius is loving God with all of his heart, soul, and mind, and loving his neighbor as himself. Cornelius, as a Gentile, has been so influenced and impacted by the Jewish people around him that even though he's not Jewish, even though he has not become a part of the Jewish faith, even though he can't participate in the full life of the Jewish faith, even though he can't go into a synagogue, he's still decided to model his life after this faith. And just for a moment... Wouldn't it be good if in our world, the folks who don't know Jesus saw the people who do know Jesus and said to themselves, their way of living is so compelling that I want to embody it too. I think there's something for us there as followers of Jesus. That for Cornelius, it wasn't some moving gospel presentation that won him to the faith. It wasn't some powerful religious service. 
It was seeing the quiet and faithful lives of the Jewish women and men around him that made him say, I want to live my life like that. And my entire family's life is going to be structured around that. Luke tells us that Cornelius started to pray at about three in the afternoon. This is a standard time for Jewish men to go and pray, a time of ritual prayer. And we're told that while he was praying, he had a vision in which an angel instructs him to send for a man named Peter, who is in Joppa. So that's Cornelius' story. Peter's story starts in verse 9. It reads, about noon the following day, as they were on their journey, as Cornelius' men were on their journey and approaching the city of Joppa, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Sometimes I just love the language of the Bible. I'm like, why say four-footed animals? That's interesting and fun. Four-footed animals, not two-footed animals. Four-footed animals, reptiles, and birds. The voice tells Peter, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. So notice the symmetry of Peter's life. Three times he denies Jesus. Three times an angel of the Lord appears to him and says, hey, I'm trying to teach you something. And he's like, nope, not going to do it. Not going to do it. Three times. And the Lord is patient with him. The angel is patient with him. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. So, Peter is in Joppa. You might remember last week Julia's really excellent sermon from last week, that Peter is in Joppa because he has just resurrected a woman named Tabitha. And now about noon, Peter goes on to the roof of the house he's staying in to pray. And I don't know about you, but I would like to have a place to pray like this one. Peter goes on to the roof of the house. He goes on to the roof of the house so that he can get away from the noise and busyness of everything that's happening inside of the house. It's a quiet space where he can have, he can be unhurried and focused. Because of the region and where Luke tells us this house is, 
it's got a veranda on the roof, a wooden structure with a linen protective covering that will shield Peter from the sun. It's cool and breezy, and it's got a view of the Mediterranean Sea. We could all be pretty spiritual in a place like that, right? Luke tells us Peter is praying at noon. It's not a standard time for a Jewish person to pray. And it's as Peter is praying that he has a vision that quite honestly redirects the history of the early church and ultimately creates the space and opportunity for folks like you and me to be able to hear the gospel, become followers of Jesus, and become part of the church. The vision Peter has is about food. It's about all kinds of food. Food that Peter, as a Jewish person, identifies as both clean and unclean. And as a righteous Jewish person, Peter has only eaten clean food throughout his entire life. But in the vision, God seems to be instructing Peter to eat the unclean food. That's why Peter refuses. He thinks at first he's being tempted to do something that's unfaithful. He's slow to realize what's actually happening, what he's actually being invited to in this passage. Peter refuses not once but three times. Only for Peter to hear God speak to him, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And then after the vision, the men Cornelius sent from Caesarea, they arrive at Peter's door. And that's when Peter realizes the vision actually had absolutely nothing to do with food and everything to do with the Gentiles, people that Peter and every upstanding righteous Jewish person considered unclean throughout their entire lives. It's in this place of prayer that God is identifying a prejudice that Peter has carried his entire life. And God is telling him, you've been prejudiced against an entire group of people. You've believed they're outside, they're not good enough, They're below you, they're beneath you, they're not ever meant to be part of my people. And in that space, God is saying to him, your ideas are wrong. The Gentiles were never meant to be kept out, and now it's time to bring them in. And you, Peter, who've spent your whole life certain that they're not supposed to be a part of God's people, you're the one I'm going to send. You're the one who's going to go first into Gentile area and preach the gospel. It's God telling Peter that despite his prejudices, well, he's telling him you need to lay down your prejudices, you need to give up your prejudices, and these people are going to become part of my people. And that's where Pastor Shaq's going to pick up next week in verse 24 when Peter will obey and go with Cornelius' men and go to a person and a people who had been systematically excluded from the kingdom, and he will be the first one to officially invite them in. But today we're focused on verses 1 through 23, verses that contain two stories 
about two people who say two prayers. They have two encounters with God and two moments of God speaking direction into their lives. Now, I'm not about to build a theology off of 23 verses in one chapter of one book of the Bible. That's how you get really bad theology. I will say these 23 verses are meaningful to me. And I will say these 23 verses fall easily in line with a pattern that Luke is developing throughout the first 10 chapters of Acts and that he'll continue through the final 18 chapters of Acts. It's in these verses that, for me, I see evidence that God wants to talk with us. That Jesus wants relationship with us. And that Jesus is capable of speaking direction and meaning into our lives. I'm also standing here as a person who struggles with prayer. I'm oftentimes afraid that I will show up as best I can and God won't meet me. I've had so many moments in prayer, so many moments where I feel alone. So many moments where I feel crushed by the silence and how in the silence all the things in my life and my heart that I've been able to ignore in the noise and busyness of life, they just shout at me in the silence. I mean, I've got hurt and doubts around prayer too. A few years ago, I believe they were well-meaning, but a few years ago a person in my church told me that a friend of mine wouldn't have died if I'd just prayed with more faith. And now, no matter how many times I've tried to push that narrative out of my head and my heart, when I sit down to pray, it inevitably creeps back in. Is God not responding because I'm not praying with enough faith? What about you? When you think of prayer, what sorts of feelings do you have? What sorts of experiences have you had? Is it something that you practice with regularity and commitment? Is it something that you value and try to do, but it's just hard? Or is it something that you've just abandoned completely? because of the pain and some of the hurt associated with it. I think we need prayer. It's like the most obvious pastoral statement of all time. I think we need prayer. And part of the reason I think that is because Jesus seemed to. I think of the moment when Jesus' disciples come to him and say, how should we pray? 
And Jesus doesn't respond to them, guys, you don't need to pray. I'm right here. Just talk with me. I'm right here. He's physically present to them, and he looks at the disciples, and he says, I'll teach you how to pray. But I don't want to minimize how difficult this aspect of faith can be for many of us. There's a pastor and author who I trust on this topic. His name's Tyler Statton. He wrote this about prayer. He said, prayer can't be mastered. Prayer always means submission. To pray is to willingly put ourselves in the unguarded, exposed position. There is no climb. There is no control. There is no mastery. There is only humility and hope. To pray is to risk being naive, to risk believing, to risk playing the fool. To pray is to risk trusting someone who might let you down. To pray is to get our hopes up. And we've learned to avoid that, so we avoid prayer. Church, I know many of us avoid prayer because we feel like we don't hear Jesus or because we don't feel like we know him or experience him more deeply on the other side of our times of prayer, or even because we've come to him with the biggest questions in our lives and we felt like we didn't get the answers that we wanted, or we felt like we didn't get any answers. And in that space, we realized we could just talk to other people who will see and who will talk back to us, and their advice seems to work okay, too. I'd like to humbly invite you to consider risking again. I think there's something we discover about Jesus and ourselves through prayer that's really hard to discover anywhere else. I am confident you've heard people say this to you before. I don't believe that prayer is about getting answers or what we want. I think it's about knowing and being known by Jesus. I think somehow through prayer, we become more human by spending time with our Savior who took on human form and understands every trial, temptation, worry, and doubt we face. I think we need to cultivate hearts that seek after God in prayer throughout the day. I'm, I'm not starting in the place where, guys, this week, I'd love for you to carve out 45 minutes in your day and just pray because I'm expecting that next week you're gonna come back and talk about these mountaintop experiences you had. For many of us, we've abandoned the practice of prayer. We've stopped talking with Jesus consistently. And so what does it look like for us to just open a conversation with Jesus that we carry throughout a day? We have so many Right? I don't know why I'm looking at you, Lynn, right now, but I'm like, we have so many text threads on our phone that are just like these open conversations with people. These ongoing threads where we just, we send texts back and forth throughout the day or multiple times a week. 
We'll do that with friends and family. And I wonder if that can create a metaphor for what this might look like in our prayer life. An open text thread with Jesus. Um, years ago, um, I, before Julie and I were married, uh, my roommate, Andy Hosmer, um, I remember having this conversation with Andy about um, prayer. We were both a part of the same church. Um, and I asked Andy about like how he thought about prayer. And he shared with me this practice that he had developed that had been taught to him that I loved. And that honestly, I'd love to tell you like I've done it every day ever since for the past 19 years. Haven't done that. Um, it's been a part of my life at different points. And he referred to, he's like, I learned to pray in a way where in the morning over breakfast, I say a quick prayer. And at the end of that, I don't say amen. I just kind of leave it open. And that way, all throughout the day, I just I ha feel like I have this open line of communication where I started a prayer and I left it open. I kind of told Jesus, like, I've got to, well, I've got to drive to work right now, but I'll talk to you later today. And before he'd walk into a meeting or before he would teach a class at the Art Institute, he would have these moments where he would just, a quick prayer, and then he would step into the work that he needed to do. And then at the end of the day, when he'd get into bed, he'd put his head on his pillow and he said, like, what he tried to do was that his last word of the day would be amen. And that was the way that he tried to structure his life. And I thought that was beautiful. And I wonder if for some of us, maybe that's a place we could consider starting. In a place where we just have this open line of communication throughout the day. Where we just start our mornings by acknowledging him. We start our mornings by, um, I mean, I love last Sunday after church, I spent some time with Miss Jeanette, and I just love the simple reality that you told me. You're like, I just thank God that I woke up on this side. I think sometimes we miss the fact that we should start our day. Maybe we should start our days just by praying and saying, like, Jesus, thank you for another day. Thank you for today. I get today. And then talk with him throughout the day feeling anxious right now, feeling really stressed right now. I'm about to have this conversation with a coworker or friend or family member that's been really challenging lately. And we just have these moments of cultivating this practice of just talking with Jesus throughout the course of the day. I think for some of us, we might need to try something different. We might need to create unhurried spaces where we can be present and attuned to Jesus. We might need to do what we see Peter doing. Some of us might need to create intentional spaces where we can attune ourselves and our hearts to Jesus. One of my closest friends is Brian Donovan. Um, we became friends 24 years ago. In college, um, I just realized that out loud I basically told you how old I am. Um, 24 years ago, I met him in college, and we've stayed close friends all throughout our adult lives. He is one of my best, most necessary friends. After college, he lived in Chicago, and then he moved to Baltimore, and now he lives in Milan, Italy, with his family. And all throughout our friendship, we'd send emails or text messages, as I'm sure you do with friends. And every now and then, we try to catch each other on the phone for an extended conversation, maybe once or twice a month. 
And then once a year or so, we try to figure out how do we actually spend a few days together? How do we spend a few days together in Chicago or Baltimore or Pittsburgh? Now that he's in Italy, we still text, but there's time differences, right? There's different commitments. He's traveling for work. There are points where his business takes him into the Middle East and I just don't hear from him for two weeks. We still talk on the phone, but instead of once or twice a month, or yeah, once or twice a month, we usually only get an extended period of time every three or four months now. On Friday, we put time on our calendar. Like it reached that point where we're like, it's been so long since we had an actual conversation together. Let's not just keep hoping that we catch time, let's actually schedule time. So we put a block of time on our calendars for Friday, and we ended up getting 45 minutes together. And can I just tell you how good that was for my heart and soul to spend 45 minutes on the phone with one of my closest and best friends? It was refreshing. I know you're like, I see you right now, Miss Karen. You're like, yeah, that's why you should talk to me more, Miss Jeanette. That's why you should pick up the phone. Yeah. It was so good for me to be able to spend that time with a necessary friend who's been a part of my life for over half my life. Someone who knows me inside and out in ways that like Brian remembers me as an 18 year old guy in college and Julia didn't even know me then. His memory of me extends back further. His knowledge of me is different than even my own wives. And it was a reminder for me that emails and texts might keep us connected but it's extended periods of focused time where I'm refreshed. It's extended focused periods of time where I can process the hard things in my life and one of the most trusted people in my life can speak into it. And over 24 years, church, I have learned that for as much as I love Brian, he is not Jesus. Just think back to the story of Peter up on that veranda praying. It's in prayer that God confronts Peter about prejudice. Prayer creates this container where we are, as Tyler Statton said, vulnerable before God. And it's in those moments that he can speak comfort and love. It's in these moments where he can challenge us. It's in these moments where he can say that thing in your heart that you've been ignoring, that prejudice, it's ungodly rooted out. It's in those places that we can experience a kind of transformation. I'm not promising that will happen every time. What I am saying is that when we create that time, we create the opportunity to experience and hear from Jesus in a way that we can't in the midst of our regular, normal, busy, full lives. I know many of us, we have multiple kids, we have multiple jobs, or multiple jobs and multiple kids. And I know we can, if we attune our hearts to it, begin the simple practice of praying throughout our day, of keeping an open text thread with Jesus. And I believe we can if we're willing to try risking again, if we value it, I think we can find space and time, even if it's just once a month or once every two months, 
to be present to Jesus and unhurried. I was, <laughs> it's a bit of an aside. I had this conversation with a person that I, I know um, a few weeks ago. And I, the sermon was coming and I was thinking about it and we started talking about prayer. And um, they were like, oh man, I just, I just don't have time for it. I was like, I bet that, like, it'd be great, but I just, I don't have time for it. And I literally was like, you spent two hours at the casino last night. You had plenty of time. And actually more money then. I think if we value it and we can, we're willing to risk it, we can find time. I believe prayer is a container in which Jesus can talk with us, where we can deepen and strengthen our relationship and trust with Jesus, and where he can speak direction and meaning into our lives. So church, what might it look like for you this week to just keep an open text conversation with Jesus? And what could it look like if over the next four to six weeks you put a little bit of time on your calendar and just said, I'm going to try it. I'm going to show up. I'm going to pray. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your words, for these stories captured in the book of Acts, for our opportunity to talk about those stories and what it might mean for our lives and how we can faithfully follow after you. Jesus, plant these words in our hearts. We love you. Amen.